Well, hello, everybody. I'm so happy you're here. And a uh, special welcome to those of you who are usually in the balcony. Welcome to the ground floor. Hey, uh, thanks, for, thanks for being patient. We've noticed that the lighting is failing up there, and we're unable to replace what we had. So we're working so that you'll actually be able to read your Bible up there, and uh, it'll be a better experience. So just take us a few weeks to get that done. So we're in this series in the book of Exodus. Exodus is the story of people moving from a place of slavery. They're the Hebrews, the descendants of Abram, Abraham. And they went to Egypt originally to be rescued because there was a famine. Uh, there was a reunion with a man named Joseph. But after some period of time, they ended up staying there for 440 years. And for a significant portion of that time, they were slaves of Egypt, the most powerful empire the world uh, had seen to that date. And they ended up building things for Pharaoh. Uh, Pharaoh declared himself a god. The people were told that they were subhuman. The people were told that the only reason they existed was to serve the Egyptians. They were told that their god was uncaring and their god was uh, weak. And the Egyptian gods were superior. But through this amazing series of events, God speaks to a man named Moses. He goes back. And through an extraordinary series of God's interactions, the Egyptians finally say, fine, go, just, just go. We, we don't want you here. And so where we're going to pick this up is probably somewhere close to three months. I think it's right there after they've left Egypt. They've been on a camping trip with a minimum of 750,000. Some would estimate up to 1.5 million. And can you imagine this? An experience in the desert camping with as many people as live in the state of Montana and there are absolutely no rules to govern you. How do people interact with each other? How do we get along? Because you are bound to have the disputes. And little do they know this is actually going to turn into a 40-year camping trip in the desert. And this 40 years, here's what needs to happen. They've been freed. There's no longer shackles on them. They no longer are owned by Pharaoh. But it takes a lot longer to become free in your mind and in your heart. That's a process. This foreshadows what happens. Wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, maybe you're just brand new, you're investigating, you're beginning, I'm glad you're here. Maybe you're a long-term veteran. But have you noticed that once God sets you free, it takes decades to actually learn who you really are and who God is. We call that discipleship. Discipleship. Mathetes means to be a disciple or a follower of a rabbi. And so we're free. Jesus sets us free. But it takes us decades to learn what it means, how to live that way, how to get free here and here. And so in this journey, here's what we're going to have. We're going to have God giving them his expectations. So this week we're going to actually look at what's known as the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. Now one of the problems with something like the Ten Commandments is probably all of us are somewhat familiar with it. Even, even if you haven't read the Bible much, you're like, oh yeah, the Ten Commandments. My grandma used to mention when I broke one of them. Um, I learned them. But probably most of us couldn't actually list all ten. But we know they're big for some reason. Like a list, it's a top ten list. We still do top ten lists. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the Ten Commandments, but not till the very end. We're going to read through those as we close. And the reason we do that is because 
it's easy to become so familiar with the Ten Commandments that we lose what they're actually all about. So we're going to start this way. We're going to talk about the idea that understanding the context for the Ten Commandments is absolutely vital. Understanding the context. Why is God doing this? Because there are, whenever you talk about law, okay, so uh, when we talk about law, we typically go to, we think of courtrooms, we think of lawyers, we think of IRS, we think of government uh, at civil levels, state levels, federal levels. We think, oh yeah, there are all these laws that try to define what we're supposed to do and the punishments involved if you don't do those things. And so the tendency is we, oh, laws, more laws, more rules. What's a little bit different here is the context, why God is going to give these rules. Right now, over the past two days, I've been trying to rebuild a fence at our house. This fence is probably 35 years old and was listing heavily into the neighbor's yard, broken posts. Now, as I build a fence, I, I occasionally see my kids and my dog looking at me. And I know my dog's looking at me and thinking, there he goes again, that oppressive master of mine. He's trying to keep me contained because the real world, all, all those experiences of chasing cars and biting into porcupines, they're outside of the fence and he wants to keep me down. He wants to keep me controlled and that's why he's building this fence. And that's often when we think of God's laws, the Ten Commandments, that's how we feel. Oh yeah, God. He's always trying to inhibit us, trying to enclose us, trying to keep us from experiencing freedom and life and all these beautiful things. But that's not the case here at all. Here's a little bit about the context. We're just going to read right before Exodus chapter 20 where the Ten Commandments are. I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 through 6. And here's what we hear. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. This is the Mount Sinai. It's been this meeting place where they are going to engage God. This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. The first part of the context is this. God does not give them laws while they're still oppressed in Egypt. He says, here's what you need to know. I'm a God who delivers people. I'm a God who, when you couldn't fight your way out, when you were oppressed, when you were owned, I'm the God who comes in and takes people who are in captivity and brings them to a place of freedom. The first part of the Ten Commandments, the context is this. God is a deliverer. I have already rescued you. I didn't rescue you because you kept all my laws. I didn't rescue you because you were so spectacular. I rescued you because I am compassionate and loving God. And how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Two more things that are about this context. God says, like a fledgling eagle. Eagles typically build their nests in a very high tree or on the side of a cliff. And legend says that occasionally a baby eagle would fall out before they were able to fully fly. And if it looked like this eagle wouldn't make it, the mother eagle would come underneath and carry this eagle. Keep it from destruction. And God says, before I lay out my Ten Commandments, this is what I want you to know. When you couldn't fly, when you were incapacitated, when you were helpless, when you were broken, I swooped in to carry you, and then I brought you to myself. God says, 
as I prepare to tell you these Ten Commandments and give you the law, you have to know that the purpose of this is relationship. I wanted to bring a people to me, that they would know me, that I would know them, that we would have a deep relationship. So this is not about laws that hinder you, that box you in, that take away your freedom. This is about a God who delivers and swoops in so that you can be brought into relationship with God. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. So there's this if-then. If you can do this, what I'm setting up, we can have this unique relationship. Although the whole world is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. God says this, what I'm about to give you would be able to set you apart where you could be my emissaries in the world. A kingdom of priests is an extraordinary idea because the priests were this whether you were in Egypt or you were in Israel, wherever it was, it was this extraordinary class of people who were typically very, very intelligent, very well educated, and they related to the gods. Only them. God says, what I'm about to give you is going to create an atmosphere where you could be an entire nation of people who relate to God, who can hear God and speak on his behalf. That is the immediate context just before the Ten Commandments are given. That's God's heart. So when we were kids, there were five kids in my family, and every now and then there would be a family meeting, family meeting. My brother Jake, we're only 18 months apart, Jake would call them forced talks, where we would all gather around the dinner table usually, and sometimes it was because someone had done something in the family that had caused turmoil or some big thing was happening. And what my mom and dad were doing, I, it sometimes felt uncomfortable, but what they were doing is they are saying, come here, guys. We need to gather around. And they would communicate their heart, their expectations, their love for us, and perhaps challenge us on some things. That seems to be what God is doing. He brings them to Mount Sinai, and he says, come here, I, I want you to know this is my heart. Before you hear the commandments, before you hear the law, you've got to know my heart behind all of this. I'm not the great inhibitor. I'm not the God who's taking away your freedom. I'm the God who is for you. And these rules, these laws are going to liberate you. They're actually going to help you find true freedom and true joy. So there's the context, very important. Secondly, the Ten Commandments were never meant to be a path toward salvation. Okay, I'm going to make a few statements that you might be a little bit bothered by, but hang in there. We're going to see what the Bible actually says about them. So the Ten Commandments were never meant to be a path toward salvation. I will hear this on occasion when I'm dialoguing with people. I, I love to engage in conversations with people who are just trying to figure out what they believe and who God is. But one of the things that we can say is we can say, well, I'm not sure exactly where I stand with God, but I've tried to be a good person. I've tried to measure up. I've tried to be kind. and I think I've kept most of the Ten Commandments. And what we can do, if we're not careful, is rather than looking at what God wants as a relationship with him, is we boil faith or religion down to I've done the right things and I've avoided the wrong things. And so that's been my path towards some sort of salvation or relationship with God. Let me, let me use this as an illustration. You ever been to an amusement park 
Maybe it was you, maybe it was your kids. And uh, there was a ride that you really wanted to go on, right? You remember first time, maybe you were eight or nine and you had to be this tall to ride the roller coaster? Did anybody ever stand there and you stand as tall as you can and you're trying to avoid the fact that you're on your tippy toes because there's a measurement that you have to measure up to and if you're not there, you're not getting on the ride. What we do oftentimes with things like the Ten Commandments is we think there's some sort of measurement. That if I can just, if I could reach all ten, if I could achieve, if I could perform, if I could do the right things, then God would say, okay, now you're in. Now you're in relationship. Now you're accepted. But maybe we've got somebody in the room who's seven feet tall. That's impressive, coming from someone who's 5'10". You're there. So maybe like number 10, well, I've never murdered anybody. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> We're going to read that one of the Ten Commandments says, do not covet. And we say, well, I haven't, well... This is do not covet your neighbor's oxen. Anybody in the room ever just coveted their neighbor's oxen? Like, <laughs> that is the nicest. Oh, I wish I had that. And you're obsessed with your neighbor's oxen. Well, the problem is it just isn't with your neighbor's ox. It's with your neighbor's house or lawn or car. Okay, okay, I, I have been greedy. I have coveted. Honor your father and mother. Well, you know, after I turned 25, I did a good job of that, right? <laughs> So we look at this as, okay, the Ten Commandments, it's not, it's not you have to perform this way in order to find God, in order to find salvation. There's actually a different purpose for the Ten Commandments. Let me give you what the text here says are two important reasons that God actually gave the Ten Commandments. The first one was this, to reveal God to the surrounding nations to reveal God to the surrounding nations. God said, one of the reasons I want you to live this way is because if, if you could be a society, remember, there are no rules. There's no civil rules at this point. There's no government. There's nothing. There's just a group of hundreds of thousands of people traveling through the wilderness. And God says, I'm going to give you a way to live. And if you could live this way, it would be extraordinary. Let's read together from Deuteronomy chapter 4, just a, just a book after this. Obey them, meaning all these laws, completely, and you will display your wisdom and intelligence among the surrounding nations. And what great nation has decrees and regulations as righteous and fair as this body of instructions that I am giving you today? You know, one of the only ancient law codes that we have, aside from the Ten Commandments, is the Code of Hammurabi. Anybody remember that from history class? Hammurabi, an ancient code. And you might at first glance look and say, well, it's kind of similar to the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus. But they're extraordinarily different. In the Ten Commandments, there is this premium placed upon human life. That every human life is precious. The Ten Commandments lead us in this direction of what I'll use the term faithfulness and love. Faithfulness to God. 
faithfulness to the people around us. The Ten Commandments create an, an environment. The laws of God create an environment where if people actually live this out, neighboring nations would look and say, wow, that's different. I'd like to be a part of that. Those are fair. Those are right. Those are, those are minimal, actually. So the first reason is to show God to the nation. Secondly, Ten Commandments were given to show us our need for actual salvation. To show our need for actual salvation. Here's what we find. Some people became obsessed with the commandments. Absolutely. Obsessed with how high can I climb. In fact, Jesus has a conversation with a man who's described as a rich young ruler. Very good man morally. I mean, just spectacular and he says, Jesus, what do I need to get into heaven? And Jesus says, well, <clears throat> you know the commandments. And the guy says this. He goes, I have kept the commandments from my youth. And Jesus doesn't argue with him. This is a morally good man. What he's looking at is, is this how I get into heaven? But Jesus then takes a new view on the commandments. So there's, there's a commandment that says, uh, do not commit adultery. All right? Well, Jesus says, that's just the beginning spot. I say, if you actually look at another person lustfully, it's the same thing as committing adultery. What? Law says, do not covet, do not take, do not kill. Well, law says don't kill. But if you look at someone and internally you have murderous thoughts, thoughts of their destruction, it's the same thing as violating that commandment. So what ends up happening is we realize where I thought I was here, I realize, actually, I'm down here. I, I can't measure up. I, I can't carry these out. And that's one of the purposes of the Ten Commandments is that people realize I can't accomplish it. I can never reach all ten. Therefore, there needs to be someone who could intervene and to help and to save it all points to Jesus. Let me give you a few scriptures. The first is from Romans chapter 7, verse 7. In fact, it was the law, this is Paul talking, that showed me my sin. The law actually showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting, meaning being greedy, wanting things that other people have, was, is wrong if the law had not said it. You must not covet. The commandments actually show us what's okay. It shows us where we're broken. Helps us understand we need a savior. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. So think of that fence I'm building. It kept us safe. It kept us within parameters where we weren't destroying ourselves. We weren't destroying other people. But it was never sufficient in and of itself. We needed Jesus to come. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. See, here's the astounding thing. Jesus is the only human being who ever walked the planet and measured up. And none of us can measure up. Therefore, we've realized, it makes us realize we needed someone who could intervene for us. Thirdly, 
the Ten Commandments are the first of 613 commandments. Okay. Wouldn't it be nice if there were just 10? I can't even accomplish all 10. We're going to go on to learn that there are actually 613 commandments. 613. Now, our, our Bibles work a little bit against us. In the original format, as Hebrews wrote, there were no chapters. So if you've got a Bible there, you'll see chapter 20, chapter 21, and there are verses. In fact, it's just one huge document without those divisions. Um, those were added later in order to help us figure out, okay, where are we reading from today? But because of that, we don't realize that this dialogue doesn't just end with the Ten Commandments. It goes on through uh, chapter 2, uh, chapter 22, through the end of chapter 23, and then chapter 25, all the way to chapter 40, where God is going to list these 613 commandments. Let me uh, draw an illustration that might help us understand a bit what these commandments actually look like. So in the center would be the 10. And you can divide these up as we prepare to read them, that there are four that specifically tell us how to love God. And then there are six how to love people. Ten Commandments are divided up. Our relationship with God, our relationship with people. In fact, Jesus has an interesting little quote. He says, what does the law teach? And Jesus boils it down to this. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, that's like Jesus' tweet on the 613 laws. Love God, love people. That's the whole heart behind it. So, but beyond this Ten Commandments, then we have, throughout the book of Exodus, we have what we'll call civil laws. These civil laws talk about what happens when somebody violates one of the six commandments against where human beings hurt each other. What, What happens when somebody loses their temper and there's hostility? What happens when someone actually... uh, steals from someone else. They can't handle the coveting thing and they take what they don't own. These are the civil commands. And you might say, wow, that's excessive. Take just a moment and think. How many laws our city has? If you wanted to build a home, have you ever looked at a building code book? Some of you who are in that, you know how big that is. If you wanted to cut down a tree... (laughs) There's things you have to do. If you wanted to tear up the street in front of you, there's, there's laws about everything. If you're in food handling, the restaurant business, there's a food handling code book, which is about that thick. And so civil laws, we have plenty of them. And then there's a bigger uh, scheme called ceremonial laws. In total, there's 613 of all these laws together. These are known as the Torah, the law, or law in English. Now, these ceremonial laws have to do with how to love God. They're going to talk about how we are to worship, the sacrificial system, what the priests are supposed to do. When you're coming to God and you're ready to ask for forgiveness, 
How do you actually do that? What's the process involved? And so it's this outward out of these four that talk about loving God. These ceremonial laws cover that. The six that talk about loving people. The civil laws cover that. This is how we're going to live together. A total of 613 different laws. Significant. It's a lot of laws. What do we do with those? The law meant to point you to Jesus. Now, number four, here's a statement that at first you might think, what are you talking about? We're no longer under the Ten Commandments or any other laws of Moses. We're no longer under the Ten Commandments or any other laws that Moses gave, those 613. You're like, well, question is then, well, what do we do with all that? Because, you know, here... Like in ceremonial law, do you know that one of the laws is have no living thing in your home? Anybody in the room have a plant in their house? Yeah? You lawbreaker. <laughs> Anybody, one, one of the laws is um, don't wear a garment with mixed uh, materials. So like if you have a cotton blend on this morning... You're violating some of these ceremonial laws. So what are these laws all about? Well, the good news is that we're not under this law anymore. It pointed us towards a need for a Savior. Does something more. Let's read a few scriptures that are going to help us understand that. The first I'll just reference is from the book of John, chapter 19. This is Jesus actually hanging on the cross, and I'll just synthesize. You could go and read John 19 in the, later in the week. As Jesus is on the cross, nearing the end of his physical life, one of the statements that he makes is this. He says, it is finished. It is finished. He's not just talking about his ability to breathe and process oxygen and his heart's ability to pump blood. But it's a much bigger statement. He's saying this way of living. Remember, we're told from Galatians that the law was, uh, it was to guard us, to keep us safe. But this way of always feeling like I can't measure up, that I'll never attain God. This way of all 613, I'll probably break one every day, maybe five every day. And you end up walking away feeling... I, I can't measure up. I can't make God happy. You feel shame and guilt. And when Jesus says, it is finished, he says, this capacity, this ability, this desire to be able to relate to God by doing the right things, that your relationship with God is based on your moral performance, that's over. It's finished. I came to live the perfect life, to die in everyone's place. Because my violation of these commands or the 613 it leads to a death sentence for me. Jesus said, I'll live the right life. I'll die in their place. It's finished. People don't have to walk around insecure before God anymore. What I'll do is, if this is God and this is humanity, I will lay down my life creating a bridge for people to be reunited with this God who loves them. But who experienced extreme isolation from God because of what's broken within them. Their inability to perform perfectly. Jesus says it is finished. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 50 through 51, we're told that as soon as Jesus dies, after he says it is finished, we're told that 
the curtain in the temple, okay, estimated to be some 50 feet tall. I don't, I don't know if you can see these curtains back here. Um, these curtains are 25 feet tall. Okay, that's 25 feet tall. So twice as high as that, three inches thick. This is that as soon as Jesus died, the, the curtain in the temple, and here's what the curtain did. There was a temple, it was their place of gathering to worship, and there was a spot where behind this curtain was the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, and human beings didn't go back there. Only the high priest one day a year would actually venture back and make an offering, ask God to forgive the people, so it was off limits. No one could go. As soon as Jesus dies, it says the curtain in the temple was ripped in two from top to bottom. So it wasn't humans ripping it forward from top to bottom. God rends it. He rips it in two. This powerful moment of communication that no longer are human beings isolated from God. What Jesus did upon the cross, he fulfilled the law, all of it. And now it's ripped open and everybody can know God. Everybody can walk into the place where God lives and breathes and have a relationship with him. We are no longer excluded. We are no longer impure and unholy because Jesus was pure and holy, died in our place. Now we have access to God. The commandments, the laws, they've been superseded by something much more beautiful. Romans chapter 6, verse 14. Paul says this. Sin is no longer your master. See, under this old system, it was always my master. I was always worried about what I did wrong. For you are no longer, you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. God's grace, the forgiveness and love that we don't deserve that he gives to us. The writer says, you're not under this old system. That was oppressive. It, it was necessary to keep people healthy and whole, but now you live under a new system, and that's God's grace. And then Hebrews chapter 10, we're gonna read several verses out of verses one through 14, Hebrews chapter 10. The old system, meaning the law, the Torah, the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. So you could look and you could go, oh, the, the law, those are the, that, that's, that's so important and we need, to, we need to keep that true, but it's only a foreshadowing of what God is planning. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. So if you had violated any of these commandments, one of the things you did is you came to the temple and you brought an animal or you brought wheat that you had raised and the wheat was burned before God. The animal was killed and it was a moment for you to experience some sort of forgiveness. There was a price that was paid and you could walk away feeling forgiven. But here's the problem. You'd go out and you'd do the same thing the next day or the next month or the next year. And so you had to keep coming back over and over. God, forgive me. I broke one of the commandments. I've done it again. Here's another bird. Here's another bushel of grain. I'm trying to get right with you. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. They could help me deal with my guilt, but they can't get rid of sins. But our high priest, Jesus, 
offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins. Good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. Jesus lived this out. Gave his life as a sacrifice. Included us in the sacrifice. And then sat down. Because the job is finished. I no longer have to prove myself to God. I no longer have to pay penance for my mistakes. What I do is I run to Jesus. And when the Father looks down at me, when I've surrendered to him, he doesn't see my failure. He sees Jesus' accomplishment upon the cross. See, in the past, the sacrificial system It never made any payments on the principal. It was only interest payments. The principal, the idea that I'm broken, the idea that I can't measure up, it never changed until Jesus came and actually addressed the principal problem. Now I want to take a moment and um, just give you my thoughts on what we do with the Ten Commandments now, what we do with the Law of Moses. Because we're no longer under them, but what place do they play in our lives? We are not accepted when we live this way. Here's one of the things. There are a lot of us in the room who still feel, I get it. We're uncomfortable with grace. We're uncomfortable that it's not about what I've done or haven't done. It's about what Jesus has done. So what we do is we're always standing there like, just a little bit better, God, I'm going to try harder, and maybe you'll love me more, and maybe bad things won't happen to me. Just stop. Stop. Here's why I want to carry, and carry out the Ten Commandments in my life right now. Not because I think it makes me acceptable to God, but because he's already accepted me. I'm not striving for adoption. You don't have to strive for adoption Instead, when I see don't lie and don't covet, I think, you know what? I'm actually going to live that way. Not because I'm trying to earn God, but because I'm already a daughter. I'm already a son. I'm already adopted. I'm already forgiven. So I just want to live like my dad lives. This is what God says is the right way of living, how to be harmonious with God and with people. I want to live that out, but not in order to earn God's favor, simply because... I'm already accepted by him. And I want to treat people well. And God knows how to treat people well better than I do. So we still live this out, but the reasons are very different. Now, in closing, let's read the Ten Commandments. We'll pause and look at a couple of them just for a moment. The Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me. And keep my commandments. Let's pause right there. The first command, most important, is do not have any gods before me. 
God says, I am a jealous God. Remember, he wants relationship. Now, C.S. Lewis says, when it comes to the first commandment, we have chronological snobbery, meaning snobbery because time has passed. So does anybody in the room at home, and it's okay, this is a safe place, does anybody have a golden calf that they worship somewhere in their home? How about an image from the sea, like a silver octopus, that when you really need something good, you go and bow down to it? All right, all right. How, how, about, how about any statues of Molech or Chemosh or Baal? Anybody have those? So C.S. Lewis says, we have chronological snobbery. We say, well, we don't have any idols. But he says, oh, yes, we do. Here's what an idol is. An idol is something that I look to in order to find peace, happiness, contentment, power, influence, success. When I am looking to something other than God to find my peace, chances are that thing is an idol. When I am looking for something, looking to something for success, for hope, chances are that thing could become an idol. We have in our culture today what we call addictions. And addictions truly are, if you look at them, they're idols. They're false gods. That I would look to this behavior in order to find peace. I would look to this hobby, which I'm addicted to, in order to find happiness. This is still the first commandment. And this is still incredibly important. And our hearts are so easily divided, not by golden calves, not by statues of Baal and Chemosh and Molech. But our hearts are divided looking for other things to fulfill what God alone can fulfill. Secondly, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Bigger than just cursing. It's, it's how I speak about God. Third, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your daughter nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. This is a big one because they just come out of Egypt where they work seven days a week. They were treated inhuman. God says, I rested. I created the universe. I want a day set aside where you can relate to me. I still think Sabbath is an excellent idea, not to earn God's favor, but God wants a day. He wants time where you're not busy producing. You're just with him. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, 
and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. Remember, they're at the base of this mountain. Moses is assembled, and they hear all these words. There's drama involved. This is a powerful God. As he's saying, this is how we created an environment where you can thrive, where you can love people and love me. They finally say, Moses, tell God to stop. Let him talk directly to you. We need to back off. This is too much for us. You take a moment and let's pray together. So we think about the Ten Commandments, what they mean. Lord, Thank you for creating an original environment with the Hebrew people where there would be safety for human beings. Where we could, cre- we could learn how to be faithful to you and faithful to people. You're good at your core. You want the best for us. Lord, thank you that that is no longer the measure of our acceptance before you. That it's not about us achieving more, doing right, but all of this, all, all of the sacrificial system, the ceremonial, the civic, the Ten Commandments, all of those things made us realize that we could never measure up. So what did you do? Jesus, you came. And you lived that perfect life that no human being could live. And then you died a form of capital punishment as a sacrifice to create safety and acceptance and relationship with all broken human beings who would call on you. So Lord, thank you that we're not trying to earn a place with you. Instead, We're not standing on our tiptoes trying to impress you. We just fall under the life of Jesus. We just surrender to him. We thank you that you died in our place. We thank you that now we live good lives because we are accepted, because we are adopted, because we are sons and daughters. And we want to act like our father. And we want to treat our brothers and sisters on this planet well. For there be no gods before you. Keep your eyes closed for just a moment. I just want to make an invitation. If there's anybody in the room and maybe you've just, maybe even been in church for a while or way in your history, you never understood what it meant that Jesus died on the cross and he took care of it all. All you have to do is you surrender to him. You run to him. You say, God, I come to you not with all my best works and intentions and trying to impress you, but I just come to you and, and I, Jesus, take me. Accept me. Forgive me. Would you give me this righteousness, this right standing before God? It's through faith in you. If that's you, you need to surrender your life to Jesus. Would you just boldly, it'll take some courage, but raise your hand, wave at me, and I want to make eye contact with you. If you're saying, I'm surrendering to Jesus, yes, sir. Yeah, I see your hand right here as well. It's a new day for you, forgiven. Yes, ma'am. New start. Yes, ma'am. New start for you here. Yes, okay. And there in the back, right there. Yes, ma'am. You're brand new in him. Yes, right there. Okay, I see your hand. Beautiful. Thank you, Lord. Amen, amen. Hey, would you join? There are just a, a bunch of people that said, yes. <laughs> We're forgiving your love. Beautiful. Now, if you raise your hand, guess what? You measure up. It had nothing to do with what you did. You just included in Jesus.
Hey, God bless you as you go. Be the hands and feet of Jesus. Let him do something extraordinary through you. There's people up front you can trust or pray for you. If you raised your hand or if you thought about it weren't sure, please go to the Welcome Center in the back. There's a free Bible in there. I'd love to get you a Bible, get you in a rooted group, and get you moving towards baptism. You can do all that at the Welcome Center out there. God bless and have a great weekend.